Welcome everybody, Conrad's Corner, second episode. Really happy, really excited to have John Crombie with us. John, you and I know each other for probably much longer than I'd like to admit at this point, but going back uh, to the start of my career. Start of my career, early 2000s, uh, Royal Page commercial at that time in the eastern part of the city. You were the, remind me, managing director yep. of the office at yep. that time. Yep. I was working for uh, one of my mentors at the time, Goran Brelli, phenomenal, phenomenal industrial agent, yep. long-standing commercial agent now, and uh, had the pleasure of having you as our manager. So uh, that was a lifetime ago. I've come full Seems circle. Like a lifetime ago, yeah. I'm back at Royal Page Commercial. We were part of the acquisition with Cushman. You've gone on with your career and come full circle back to Cushman as well. Yep. So your title now? Executive Managing Director of Retail Services for Canada. Exactly. First of all, I'm delighted to be part of this uh, this podcast. So thank, thank you, you very much for inviting me. No, thank you for, for joining. We're, we're very happy to have you. You bring a wealth of knowledge and experience and really something that I think is going to be pertinent to what's going on in the industry right now. Your involvement also with ICSC. Yep. Or did, did they recently rename themselves? I know it is ICSC, but... Well, not. the acronym sti- still stays the same okay. for ICSC, but it's the conference. It's the association there uh, for retail and uh, for landlords and retailers. So I've been actually on the foundation board for them for many years, and that's a philanthropic arm of ICSC. And so we raise money for young people for scholarship, mentorships, and internships. Amazing. So we're uh, up raising $2.5 million for that initiative, and it's great to get younger people, like you started in the industry, younger people into the business. And so we support it through scholarships at schools. We have mentorships. You could be a mentor if you wanted to. So some people looking coming in the business. So I've been involved in that. I'm also the marketplace leader for 2023, 22, 23. So that looks, I look after the full volunteer network for ICSC. So uh, it's been fun and it's been rewarding. And And busy, uh, no doubt. Yeah, and I think part of it, I mean, I I think when you go in your career, it's giving back, right? You've had a good career. You've had people like yourself you've worked with. We've worked together. And uh, it's one of those things where at some point you want to give back the knowledge, the experience. And ICSC has been tremendous from that perspective to, to be part of. And also you get outside of your normal circles too. You know, you have your day-to-day operations yeah. in terms of the people you're dealing with, your clients, your customers. Um, but this puts you into a totally different, different realm of individuals. And I found that very rewarding because you may not have engaged with them on a regular basis or at all if you hadn't been part of ICSE. That's so great. It's part That's, of that volunteer. Well, congratulations, first of all, on doing that. It sounds like a, a ton of work and busy times for you. So speaking about uh, the start of the career, giving back, mentorship, uh, I agree with you completely. I mean, I had some phenomenal mentors starting out, some really good people that taught me a lot of life, life lessons. Yeah. Uh, thinking back to that time uh, at the Cushman office specifically, you've transitioned a lot since that time. But what do you take away from that experience managing 100 and plus agents in that office, whatever yeah. it was at the time? Yeah. Uh, senior, junior, teams, industrial office, hospitality, retail, everything, all of it. Uh, I can't remember how many years you did it for, but it seemed like forever. <laughs> a decade. Yeah, a decade. There you go. Uh, yeah. What do you take from those 10 years? Um, well, first of all, before I, I came back, before I was in the Toronto office looking after the North operations, I was actually in Edmonton with uh, Royal Pitch Commercial. So oh. I, managed, I ran the Edmonton office. And so I had a lot of chance to work with a smaller group, but certainly sharpen my skill set there. And then brought back in 2000 to manage the East office. And you're right, there was uh, over 100 professionals there. And, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, personalities, let's yeah, say. A lot of, 
You know, they say with 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 uh, with brokerage, it's like herding cats. So uh, it's there's their challenges you have there. What I loved about it, it was multidisciplinary, right? In the sense that you had office leasing, you had industrial sales and leasing, yeah. retail sales and leasing, investment, hospitality, and all that stuff. And so you got a chance to see quite a wide window of all the different disciplines and everything there. Um, I love the fact of coaching. And one reason I got into management is I like the seeing people advance in their careers. Yes, making money is good in this commercial and, and commercial real estate industry. Um, but at some point you say, how can I help people? And maybe this is what I was talking about earlier with ICSE is you spend the time there and that's just an extension of that. But in management, it really became part of that is that uh, I love the coaching, love the managing, love to build the operations. Uh, to make sure that people are getting opportunities to make more money, to make sure. And what I really like, too, is <clears throat> is generating the opportunity mm. and then sort of passing the football. And that I always found that fun, that business development side of it. Um, and then and that I think that really helps to grow the overall operations by having that kind of, you know, um, uh, having that as part of your uh, operations. That's great. Um, certainly, I remember back at that time, you were a very uh, open-minded manager, open-door policy. Yep. Anybody could come talk to you, whether you were yep. senior, junior, whatever it was. Yep. Um, great for being able to bounce off some ideas at any point in time. You were always open to hearing ideas and hearing about uh, any issues, problems, whatever was going on. Um, it, also, in, in combination with, with Johnny Hare, who I ended up moving yeah. out to the West office. Oh, yeah, yeah, of another, another phenomenal manager, great guy, great personality. But... Um, and then thinking about at that time when Royal Page Commercial was acquired, the transition, um, any feedback, any thoughts on what that was like going through that transition of, of Cushman Wakefield coming and buying Royal Page? Well, uh, we were a Canadian company, a well-known brand, um, and had managed that for many, many years. Uh, we were a very successful operation, but it was, a, it was, it was the time changing where global was becoming the big thing. And that we felt to continue our growth, uh, we needed extensions well beyond uh, the Canadian borders. Mm -hmm. We had actually utilized Cushman Wakefield for years yep. as a referral network for them to come in. We were an informal partner and then more of a formalized partnership. Um, but we felt, and I think Colin Bastable, you mm -hmm. know quite well, uh, felt that uh, it was the right time to look at the operations to go on a global platform. A lot of our competitors were doing it, not to say what the competitors are doing we should be doing, but I think it was just a natural extension of where our business should be going at that time in 2005. And it's hard to digest. I mean, there's a lot of things you need to do. We had a full new branding yeah. exercise, and you know about that, for how that works. And so we had to deal with, with their people understanding what are the benefits of going to a more of a global platform as well, right? You know, we tried to increase the referral business uh, from the United States to Canada or Europe. So um, I started dipping my toe into the retail services mm -hmm. platform at that time. And we believe, well, if any, any brand is global, it's retail. Gucci's Gucci yep. worldwide. <clears throat> and so we had a great opportunity. So we really tried to plug in the operations globally. So we were, I was going regularly over to Europe, attending the quarterly meetings there, going to the United States and discussing it and saying, hey, we're in Canada, we can help you with your operations here if you've got retailers expanding or people want to invest in this country. And so it became a great thing and it's continued to be 
a good thing over the last number of years? It, yeah, absolutely. It certainly has. And certainly the acquisition springboard uh, was, was the catalyst to springboard Cushman into Canada. And it's gone on to be very successful and continues to flourish. And while over the last 10 years, Royal Page has had a resurgence and we've come back and we're now the largest and fastest growing commercial brand in Canada, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're still not as international as somebody like Cushman and some of the big right. three C's, if you will. Um, after that, of course, you made a move over to TrioVest? TrioVest, yeah. TrioVest. And what were you responsible for there? I looked after their retail platform across the country. So we are third party. TrioVest is the third party property management company. So uh, we managed various malls there, so I helped in terms of that platform uh, for a number of years. But before that, I was managing, but as you may know, I had a transition period where I became a player coach. Oh, no. One one reason is that our retail platform had grown so much, you know, over that period of time from the year 2000 Mm -hmm. up to 2010. And it's felt that, you know, companies like Target, which came and went, but they came into the market. You see a lot of interest in the Canadian uh, marketplace for retailers coming in there. So then I took a different role for four years acting as a player coach. And in fact, we did, we won the account for Rona. This is mm-hmm. before they were bought by Lowe's and of course now been bought by private placement. Um, but we work with them because they had to look at, you know, culling out unperforming sites, selling off excess real estate and everything else. So that became a huge account for us to run uh, on a national basis. So we did all the work for them. That's amazing. I didn't know that, but uh, talk a little bit about what it's like to see a big U.S. brand like Target come in, give it a shot, not be successful, ultimately pull out with with you know somewhat massive fanfare around that. <laughs> and what what would yeah. be the reason why something like that wouldn't be successful? Well, let, let's uh, let me let me set the stage. Actually, a lot of international retailers that come to Canada, mainly U.S come to Canada are very successful. In fact, it has like a 93% success rate. Oh, wow, that high. Yeah, so it's, it's one reason is we're not over-retailed compared to the United States. And so retailers coming into this market, it's, uh, it's harder to find spaces. Um, the good news is retailers generally make money on them. Landlords generally make money on, on those locations. Target, when they came in, I think their strategy was right from a real estate perspective. They ended up buying all the Zellers yeah. locations. They had right? great locations. So I had 133 locations. I don't. I, I firmly believe it wasn't their uh, real estate strategy. It mm-hmm. seemed to be more their um, distribution strategy. Yeah. You know, and how they how they dealt with their merchandising and everything like that. Target was well known coming into the Canadian market. Mm-hmm. And Canadians knew it. Definitely. Very high brand recognition, and so I think at some point they just looked at it. They tried to expand. The next step was once they took the existing locations, they ended up doing what we call greenfield developments. And so they stepped into that. And uh, But it's funny, they closed in January of 2015. In the summer previous, we saw a lot of pulling back on those particular greenfield developments. So something was up. The writing was on the wall already? Well, I don't know if the writing was on the wall, but I think they were at a point where they said, you know, wait a minute, we need to digest this. We need to understand it better. I mean, it was classic when a lot of people went into the target locations that they just didn't have enough um, product there. Yeah. And so, you know, and like any <clears throat> retail business, you know, your experience for the customer better be good if you want them to continue to come back, like restaurants and everything else. Yep. And so I think they felt, what am I getting? What's so different about this? And was it a shock? We thought that maybe they would call out, you know, a certain amount, but pulling 100% out yeah. uh, certainly was like a, quite a shot to the chest in the retail business in Canada. That said, their stock value went up immediately. So, uh, you know, the way the market 
took on it, felt that it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, certainly at the time, um, arm's length, hearing about it, that seemed to be what we were hearing as well, is just the distribution issues, stock issues, supplier issues. Uh, you'd go in and there was various stories and social media posts of, you know, old Mother Hubbard, the cupboard was bare, there was nothing there at all, yeah. nothing on the stocks. But I think it was a shock, it certainly was. And I remember at the time at the retail and just the landlord and the real estate groups trying to work on the pullout. And then, of course, there's still landlords that are left with empty space right now. Yeah, you know, their typical size is about 120,000 square feet. And on your hand, you can count how many retailers are of that size within yeah. the Canadian market. So once you take a large Canadian tire or a Walmart, you know, what was happening in many cases, they were split into baby boxes. Mm. So you take 120,000 and you get a 30 or 40 or 50,000 square footer. And, and it actually, the economics work decently well. It's expensive to do that. The economics work well because if a typical target location is paying eight to $14 square foot, usually brought that rate up to yeah. almost 20 in some cases. And, uh, and I think it made a lot of sense there. What happened once Target left and we got all those spaces back, then of course Sears mm -hmm. started their slow departure out of the Canadian market. And so one lesson we learned from Target is that many cases we tried to work around the existing improvements and again, expensive. When Sears started giving back boxes and eventually leaving Canada, we we're better off tearing down their, their, right. their particular properties, their particular stores. A lot of them were very old, um, you know, they were cumbersome. Sears had a lot of handcuffs for a lot of landlords mm -hmm. in terms of what they could do. Uh, they paid very little rent. Um, so, you know, like a buck 50, buck 75 in some cases. Must be nice. Must be nice. Well, that was the, you know, you have to take the history of retail where you took the large, I mean, when, when malls were developed, <clears throat> it was the large department stores became the anchors, which had very favorable rates, but they were the driver of the business and the rest of the CRUs and the rest of the retailers added that up and made up. And that's where the landlords made most of their money. So you appreciate why they had it. They had it and they had a lot of, uh, not a lot of restrictions in the sense they could put any type of use, even though there was duplicate uses in there. So they, they could really write their ticket. But that was an eventual time. Really, the decline of the apartment store, whether it's in Canada or the United States, has been going down for years. And it has to do with productivity. Mm -hmm. It has to do with productivity in the sense that when you look at the square footage and what kind of sales they were doing, you just have to start reducing to get that productivity level under a place where you're starting to make money. And so we've seen that decline for many, many years. I think in Canada, it's pretty much finished. I mean, really? There's not that many larger retailers. Yeah, there'll be a, a Walmart looking at making some changes. HBC is obviously closing a few yeah. now. They're more of a real estate play than they are a retailer play, as you may or may not know. And so, but in the United States, we'll still continue to see the decline of the department stores, which is just a natural evolution where the business is going. I think most of the audience would have assumed when you said the natural decline, you were going to finish that sentence by saying the natural decline is because of e-commerce. No. No. No, because a lot of retailers are embracing e-commerce. And it's called omni-channel. And what omni-channel means, it doesn't matter how you touch your customer, whether it's through your bricks and mortar or your e-commerce platform or even catalogs, which certainly aren't dead, or even flyers, which certainly isn't dead. And so it's a way of touching the customer through your computer, the mobile phone. And so that employs the e-commerce. Now, of course, when the pandemic hit, mm. e-commerce doubled, literally doubled overnight wow. in April of 2020. And it's, it's an, it does about an average of about 15% growth per year. Um, it's elevated now after the pandemic where a lot of us are used to uh, buying online. That yep. will continue. Amazon had some poor quarters last month. But I think we're now back to this buying at bricks and mortar. But we do like the benefit of doing both. Delivery service is here to stay. 
especially yeah. in the urban model. I think people will see that. Curbside, we see sort of peaked and it's come down a bit. You know, it had, when you couldn't go into the store, curbside made a lot of sense. I think people are more willing and feel safer to go into the store. So curbside, we don't. But we see the delivery model going up. And e-commerce is definitely here to stay. Uh, retailers know that when they close, it's called the halo effect. When they close a store, mm -hmm. um, they find their e-commerce business goes down in that particular area. Hmm. So there's a synergy between e-commerce sales and your bricks and mortar sales. And so consequently, put a new store, you actually see an uplift. And of course, it's all about the BOPIS, you know, buying online, picking up in store. What was that? BOPIS? BOPIS, yeah. Buying online, picking, picking up, up in store. store. Okay. Or return in store. Yeah. And so that, again, that synergy is pretty important. If you make it easier for the customer to return their products, it, it makes it, especially if they come to the store, there's actually an uplift. So they bring a product back for $100, usually you spend about $120 to $130. So you're getting a 30% rise in sales when they bring back the product that they don't interesting. want. Interesting. So that's, that's not entirely synergy. intuitive to the average consumer, I don't think. But that's, that's interesting to hear that. So a 30%. There's a 30% rise. And the, and the problem with just pure e-commerce, the direct-to-consumer brands, is that if it's clothing, especially shoes, like your kids buy six pairs of shoes, return three of them, they have actually a 50% return rate, which is really high. Yeah. And so, and it's a hassle to return. There's a whole bunch of models out there trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with it. But the bricks and mortar strategy, the omni-channel strategy is certainly the right strategy to be employing these days from retailers. We're also seeing it with some landlords. In fact, taking a shopping mall and making it like an Amazon, like come order on this shopping mall, all our retailers in there, we'll collect all the, part, all the things you want and we'll send them out to you. So they're actually looking as, a, as an omni-channel strategy as well. But that's the growth, Re, you know, e-commerce is here to stay. Is it ever going to be 100% of sales? No, of course not. United States, we're about 20, we're certainly a lot lower than that. In Canada, probably about half of that in terms of the Closer to 10% here? 10%, wow, I'm yeah. surprised. I would have assumed it would be higher at this point. You know what? We have to get Statistics Canada to figure out how they're actually calculating all that stuff. You know, some cases they have online, when you buy your airline tickets, seen as an online e-commerce sale. Mm. So it's not true in terms of that. So right. we're, they're dicing and slicing as this industry. And they take a little time to figure it out. So it's really hard to compare apples to apples in any case of where it is. We certainly know the growth of it. And we see it from the retailers. They're, they're all benefiting and seeing their, you know, some of their largest growth on the e-commerce platform. No doubt. No doubt. I know even... Specifically, as Amazon changed the landscape of retail and the other retailers jumped on board, it's commonplace now. It's come, I mean, obviously with Amazon, you can get stuff with Prime within one day. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. The other retailers, uh, to your point, yeah. I mean, I know people that do that. They buy four different sizes, four different colors, then they want to return it. So it's that process now that they've made it easier. It's starting to really pick up. Easier for your customer at the end of the day, right? That's the key. Uh, coming out of COVID, what other lessons did the retailers learn? A couple things have really have, have come out. For, certainly in 2021, was a huge spike in retail sales year over year. Almost, almost 9%. Wow. You know, we didn't spend for some time, and then we all just went crazy and started <laughs> spending, right? And so I think there was that. Um, we, we, we found that a lot of retailers now, because, let me back up. COVID was probably the best, greatest accelerator for retail change. And if we have the recession, and I'm like, come on, recession, come on. We keep hearing about it for the last year, right? Yeah. But I think if any asset class in real estate will do well, will be retail. And the fact is, is that COVID, the pandemic, really had to make some huge changes in that industry. Because 
we weren't open. Retail wasn't open, yeah. right? Yes, there were some delivery malls, but restaurants had their really challenging time. A lot of the retailers had a lot of challenging times. And so many retailers went to CCAA, had a chance to uh, right-size their portfolio, yep. look at underperforming locations. Yep. So there was a massive amount of that. And so in 2000, we saw uh, cl- uh, retail closures of about three and a half times average. Funny, in 21, we saw very little, but that was because a lot of them were still on rent subsidies or rent deferrals and things like that. We're, do, we're now seeing a spike, but about half of what we saw in 20, so far year to date, we're seeing about half of what we saw in the year 2020. Mm. But a lot of that stuff, the collateral damage has already gone through the system and everybody's feeling a lot better for it. Uh, one thing that we have, the retailers looked at is they're more about the quality of a location, not the quantity of locations. Where I'm going with this, like fast fashion, you know, when you're buying your thing, you're going out clubbing that night, right? You know, people buy it for one or two nights, right? Yep. And then they get rid of it, and that's the whole fast fashion. And there was a huge growth from year 2008, and, and so they're just stores were opening for the fact of opening. And now retailers are looking at the fact of saying, I'm better off having a quality location rather than the quantity of location. So they're very selective in what they're going to. And one main reason is the fact that a lot of them had to dip into their capital reserves. You, let, you leave money to grow. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that um, capital to grow, then you're at a disadvantage, right? So we've, we've definitely seen that side of it where they're saying, okay, if we're going to go out, let's more be strategic. They say, you know, what was good about the pandemic? You know, you can't change your tires when you're driving your car. So when you were paused, it was a good chance. And we actually, at Cushman Wakefield, we did a ton of retail consulting work on, on portfolio optimization. No doubt, no doubt. And so retailers, you know, where should I be? Why should I be? What's my competition doing? Where should I be closing? Where should I be opening? And stuff like that. So that was really the time to do it. Everybody took a breath, a little bit of a Absolutely. state of the union, reviewed their portfolio. And then coming out of that, what do you think was the number one change? Was it a consolidation and just really optimizing the quality of stores? Well, the quality of stores and the quantity of stores. And I think the other thing is that, A, you had to get your omni-channel, because we've right. been talking about that for years, I mentioned earlier, is how do you get that blend with e-commerce and with the bricks-and-mortar store, and how do you get in that in balance? And it's funny, the biggest growth in e-commerce was the bricks-and-mortar stores, because they could react quicker during the pandemic mm. than a lot of the direct-to-consumer brands, right? So we saw they were the biggest growth beneficiaries of, of the pandemic. So you've learned how to that. I think servicing of customers never gone away and will continue to be the number one thing. Um, we've also seen through the pandemic local is a big thing. Yeah. You know, when you stayed at home and you were, you know, not going obviously to the downtown or, or traveling as much. So the importance of local became paramount. And we've seen that actually the growth of grocery store related in communities. They've actually been some of the most successful um, uh, retail platforms these days in the sense of we've seen rents going up. We see a lot of retailers looking at that location because they're being supportive. Like, you know, when you went out and you want to make sure your dry cleaner stays, right? So you're going to give them business. You want to make sure those local restaurants that you like to frequent. You may have been going downtown, but you like to see it because it really is the fabric of the community that's really there. But a lot of them didn't survive. Well, a lot of them went through rent subsidies. First of all, restaurants have a high failure rate anyway. Yes. You know, there's are 80% failure rate over two years or something like that. So they have a, a, a lot of them kept, were able to, to continue because of rent subsidies and rent deferrals and stuff like that. But there was a natural follow. But I think we as consumers supported more of that than ever before. We saw huge growth in drive-thrus mm. and we continued to see that. That'll be something that'll stay in here. You know, Starbucks 
we changed our coffee habits. I know you've got your Starbucks here. I do. <clears throat> but we had a coffee habit is that we would have got our Starbucks from six in the morning till nine in the morning. And that shifted two hours where we worked at home, we started, yeah. and then we went out for a break and we went through the drive-through. And their drive-through business increased by about 80% during the pandemic. Wow. And Starbucks closed actually 300 locations during the pandemic. They've opened up 150. Most of them suburban drive-through has been their growth pattern. They've closed a lot of the suburban locations, urban locations. Yep. And many is that, you know, you could walk from your go to your office and pass by three. So now you only pass by two or one, but you're still gonna pass by a Starbucks. So they saw that change in, in that where it goes, goes from there. Interestingly enough now with cost of construction going up, and we're also seeing uh, the cost of, of delivery has been very difficult uh, for, for, for materials, is that now pad developments mm -hmm. <clears throat> where QSRs, quick service restaurants or banks, we'll be looking at that. We're finding a real shift in uh, the landlords looking at pushing that responsibility off to the retailer. Really? Yes. The costs? The cost. Oh, boy. And so that's been a huge shift. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with there's less capital out there, especially for we're going into a challenging economic time. Yeah. So we're seeing this change in, in that pad development and saying, okay, Mr. Bank or Mr. QSR, we'll give you the space. It'll be a fraction of what you pay because we yeah. would have paid for it, but you take the responsibility to build it out. And the cost of construction, in most cases, has gone up 30, 40, 50%. You pick a number. I mean, it's for crazy, sure. right? In terms of that. So we've seen that. So rental rates, they're giving lower rental rates? Correct. They'll okay. just do it like a land-only cost, and then you'll see the, the bump up from there. Wow. So that's that's been a that's been a huge change. We our latest ICSC in Toronto a few weeks ago. Yeah. That was a big theme on there, you know, how's that happening? Which really means less. You know, back to my quality of locations, not quantity locations. Again, when you right. have limited capital and now you're responsible to build it, you're going to be very selective on where you go, what you're going to take, and why you're going to take it. So that's that's really changed the landscape there, from especially on pad developments. So what's the, the sentiment from the QSRs? Are they embracing it? Are they taking it on and saying, we need these spots, we want to be these pad sites, you know, whatever they might be, standalone, freestanding, drive-through locations, we're willing to pay? Or are they saying... Let's wait. Let's wait for the development cost to drop back down a little bit more to reality. Are they taking a wait and see? Or are they just saying we got to pay? We got to have it. Well, I think it's both. I mean, I think you have to look at it from a pure economics point of view. I mean, it's based on sales, right? Yep. So if you looked at that location, you're going to generate 1.5 million or whatever the case may be. You know, what should rent should be on that particular location? And a good location is worth 10 bad locations, right? So if it's worth going after, you may say, I'm pulling, a plug, I'm, pull, I'm pulling the pin on this and I'm going to take this location. So we're finding that. But some may say, I'm going to wait. I don't, hey, they ain't making any more land, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and development. And that's another thing we've seen a huge change is the development pipeline. You know, Canada has about 900 million square feet of retail space across the country. And we usually have about a 1% growth of new developments. And that could be mixed about, mixed use developments or pure retail plays or whatever the case may be. And since the pandemic started, the development pipelines turned off. Mm. We didn't know what to do. And retail was going through this crazy time, right? And so a lot of things have been shelved. A lot of things have also been shelved because of the cost, because yep. the costs have gone up. And so we're seeing the development pipeline now being about a quarter of what it typically is across the country. And so it's a big discussion with landlords these days, what's going on on that side of it as, as it relates to this development pipeline. And I think it'll have a couple effects is that I think it's going to continue to pump up rates, especially in the suburban markets, uh, because there's just less pipe, less, less development opportunities and less 
places for retailers to take. And that it's, makes sense. It's, it's natural to have a 1% growth because we have a 1% population growth and we have a wealth growth over the long run. It's up, you know, there's mixed use, there's mixed, um, you know, messages in the retail these days. You know, it's funny, retail sales for July were down and it was up in August and it was down in September, right? We're seeing this bumpiness, <laughs> but that's, you know, and they're saying, you know, sales for uh, holiday spending will be down 17%. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. That holiday's yeah. going to be down 17%. Yeah, Deloitte just came out with a oh, recent wow. study saying Interesting. That. Somebody should tell my wife that. Well, you know, we all should be spending more money in retail, <laughs> absolutely. But but you're seeing you're getting this mess, mixed messages and you're getting like, you know, employment growth of 108,000 last month. I mean, what's this? And a lot of it was in retail and construction and other areas, right? But as I say, I believe that retail has really gone through its metamorphosis. It's gone through mm -hmm. its change. It's going to weather any economic storms coming up. Yes, we'll have these bumps along the way. Um, but from a retailer perspective, there'll be a continual growth. The ICSC conference, we were both just at it recently here in Toronto. You mentioned it. What were some of the main takeaways of that conference? I know you were the chair and speaking on a few panels. Yeah. Anything, any, any tidbits that you can bring from that? First of all, people love to be back in person. They love it. I always say retail is a contact sport, so yeah. you can't do it. You have to be like this, right? Yeah. You know, so much FaceTime, team time, you know, teams, teams meetings. So I think people really enjoyed that. Um, back to where the suburban urban was, this, I mean, the urban market is still having its issues across the country, mainly Toronto. You know, the, the back to work is, you know, is more of an issue in the bigger cities like Toronto, London, LA, New York. Um, but we're still seeing the effects of, from a retail perspective in the urban areas. You know, it's great when people are saying go back three days a week. Mm -hmm. Well, retail, that means only you're getting 60% of your revenue, although you have to staff it, you know, five days a week, you know, traditionally from the downtown core, especially in restaurants. Yeah. So you're seeing that. Suburban market, as I mentioned, has is, is gone really well because, again, it's local support. A lot of us are still working from home. And uh, when, when the retailers were talking with a lot of landlords, retail, the landlords are filling up a lot of those spaces. Mm. And they, they've filled up. And one a big phenomenon we've seen is that I mentioned all those vacancies that came up. Yep. So what's happened is that a lot, and a lot of them happen in tertiary, uh, secondary and tertiary malls mainly was, was the biggest drop when a lot of these, you know, uh, CCAA and retailers yep. are giving up a lot of locations. But landlords took advantage of it and went to go after local retailers, back to the local theme. And a lot of these were direct-to-consumer brands, and they're now coming into the malls on a very temporary basis. It's called specialty leasing. Right? Yeah. So you bring them in there. And I love it. I think it's great because we saw the, the amount of space dedicated to special leasing almost double because of, of the vacancy there. But landlords came in there and said, look, just do a little bit of improvements. Um, you know, don't, don't go too crazy because we don't want to spend the money. You don't want to spend the money. But you're bringing these local retailers in there. So we saw huge growth in that. A lot of pop-ups coming in as Definitely well, Definitely seen a lot of those. A lot of, and, and so it was great for some of these direct-to-consumer brands to get into malls they never would have been able to get mm. into. Funny, when we're marketing, you know, from a landlord's perspective, you know, the traditional marketing is ICSE because that's a transaction show, is yep. right? But when you're de dealing with a direct-to-consumer brand, what you have to do is actually got to find these people on Instagram and and uh, TikTok because that's where they're advertising <laughs> to their customers, right? <laughs> so you, you go and search all that stuff and you find this brand and if it makes sense, sense to bring into your malls. Yeah. So we saw uh, that filling up. So what was going on in the market is a lot of landers saying, 
hey, I'm pretty much running out of space because they filled it up with their existing tenant base, but also these temporary tenant bases. And so when retailers come into them, especially we've seen this flight to quality, it was always a big thing in office, right? There was always a flight to quality and the market went down. People went from C product to B product, to B product, to A product, because the price differential wasn't different, wasn't much. We've seen it now for the first time in a long time in retail where we've seen that flight to quality. Mm. So some of the best malls are seeing these retailers and the, those landlords are also reaching out for the retailers because they want to fill their vacancies, want to yeah. increase their NOI. Well, you see a lot of those stories on some of the local uh, websites that, oh, so-and-so who was operating out of the garage or out of the basement got a pop-up and all of a sudden now they have this massive yeah. 2,000 square foot unit at, at Cadillac Fairview, One of the, take any of the malls. You know? Absolutely. It's surprising to see that. But they would, to your point, they would never have gotten that opportunity otherwise. A couple of malls that we've seen, they have this little bit of like almost like a farmer's market opportunity too. You see that sometimes you go in and they've got all the pop-ups in this little area. Is that going to continue? Is that just trying to get the local players out there? Well, uh, first of all, it was a, when you're an interior mall, a lot of people didn't want to go into an interior mall when the pandemic was at its height or it's spiking, right? And so a lot of uh, landlords were looking at these out outdoor farmer markets or yeah. outdoor um, just markets to, to entice people to come to at least to the outside of the mall to yep. come in there. I think you'll you'll continually see that depending on the, the mall and what's going on there. Um, I don't know if that's gonna be a, a growth area. I think it's sort of, it's a good thing to have at the right time. Obviously the summer is the best time to be doing it, but I don't see that as being a huge growth in the last next little while. So the deals right now for you guys specifically, I mean, are you looking more at landlord representation, trying to move some, some product, move some space? Or are you representing tenants and running with tenants primarily? Um, two thirds of our business is the landlord side on okay. a retail perspective, yep. and then one third is tenant rep. And we do tenant rep either on a, on a localized basis or a national basis. We work with Sally Beauty, for example. We do all the work for H&R Block across the country. Yep. We do RBC's work across the country. And so uh, we have national platforms for the retailers. Uh, so, but one third is on the tenant rep side and two thirds on the landlords. So we, we take on a prop property and then help to fill it up with that particular retailer. That's great. That's uh, a lot of work with landlords for sure, no doubt, two thirds. And a lot of work with tenants. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's providing the right tools. I mean, one thing that we, we're really big on these days is having, we subscribe to Enveronics, for example. And Enveronics is a uh, demographics, uh, they do a whole bunch of stuff, but psychographic yep. demographics. Yep. And it's important when you're marketing a property or working with a retailer is why do they want to be in a particular market? So you can understand what the you know average income is and what the population growth is. But we also look at personality characteristics of consumers. And so when I was talking about portfolio optimization, for example, uh, we would work those retailers and say, what are your most successful stores? And they say, well, these, these, these. And then we would anal analyze those particular stores. And then they find that their top 80% of their, of their sales were by five different char five characteristical um, char char characteristics of these consumers. Yep. And then we say, okay, where are those uh, located in other markets? So then you look for those clusters. Of that. that means that you're probably a higher probability of being successful in that because your best stores have those same type of customers. So we do that for them. Has it, the game changed now? And, and my last QSR brand, I know when I was there representing them, looking at optimizing our portfolio, right-sizing, downsizing, making moves. Yeah. Uh, for us, technology, those platforms, not particular that one, but some other ones, some other um, technology platforms we had used, was a massive part of what we did in the analysis right now. Yeah. That certainly has to have changed over the last five, 10 years from what, what people were doing in the past, both on the brokerage side and on the landlord side. 
Well, I think it's getting more sophisticated. I always think in retail has a, there's an art and a science to it. I mean, I think you know it feels good. Yeah, <laughs> that's the art side of it. But then you have to have the backing as much as you can from the data side of it. You know, big data, and we've been talking about it for many, many years. Um, you know, we've through ICSE, and I'm on the National uh, Research Council for ICSE, and you know, we'd love to have it that the retailers and the landlords work together and shared information. It's too <laughs> idealistic. It's a little you know. too close to uh, bad partners there, I think. Correct, yeah. I mean, there's a synergy. They have to be together anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, the idea is a retailer is going into a, a land, uh, to a landlord's location, and, you know, and there's a lot of times percentage rent, as you know that. Mm -hmm. So once you hit a certain no number over that, the landlord gets more, but you're making more sales. So there's, a, there's an incentive for the landlord to increase the sales, right? So there is that synergy, and it's important to have that relationship. But we'd love it that if we could share information back and forth. And I, we keep talking about it, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. But the importance of having data and understanding data and analyzing data uh, going forward, especially if it's about, you yeah. know, if I'm going to pay a premium for these quality locations, exactly. I better have all my homework done because you don't want to take a risk. Yeah. You know, you want to minimize the risk in those locations. So some of the opportunities and uh, a couple final questions for you. But one of the ones I have to ask you about, and I was intimately involved in a brand that was launching at the time. But what is going to happen with all these cannabis locations? <laughs> I have to ask you because they're everywhere. Yeah. They're everywhere. Yeah. And there's a massive change in, in the market, I'd say, over the last 12 months. Some are coming, some are going, some are acquisitions, mergers. What's going to happen? There's so many. Yeah, well, as you know, when the cannabis, I don't know the situation you had there, but you know when cannabis did come and then the regulations, and it was pr province by province in terms of its regulations. And at one point in Ontario, for example, they thought the LCBO would be creating that and controlling it. And, and so it kind of flip-flopped back and forth. But there was such a rush for locations yeah. that many of these um, retailers paid two times rent. Mm -hmm. just to get location. If not and, more. If not more, yeah. but the average was two-time rent, right? Which it, it, the problem in that scenario is that the sales just aren't going to, are certainly not supporting that today. And you also had landlords, some landlords were uh, suggesting, I don't want that. You know, if I'm an international landlord, and for example, that if, if cannabis is still legal in most states, and I'm supporting it within the Canadian market, what is legal, will that be a problem for lending and all that stuff? So there's this real education and what does cannabis really mean and is it a mean and evil thing to have in your malls? I think we've kind of got through that. But the problem was, yes, there was a huge expansion, two-time rent being paid, yep. and then a lot of them finding that you know they're just not making anywhere near the sales that they thought they would be doing, should be doing. And so you're definitely seeing now that coming off, mm. a number of closures coming in there. The, the best are surviving. There's some certainly some good retailers. The, the one I've seen, Cannabis, some of the stores are, are fantastic in their design. They're like a high-end jewelry store. Yeah. The way they've, the way they've marketed themselves and then all the additional products they have going along with it. So it's, it's like there's just an evolution. There's a huge growth, and then it just sort of levels off. And I think we're at that certainly decline level off. Probably the pandemic accelerate again some of those closures yep. for the reasons I said earlier. And so I think you'll find it more of a, a, a normalizing and leveling off. And that's that's where the environment we're at right Gonna now. Going to level off some space coming back and then it'll level off. Uh, as we wrap up here, two final questions. You've been around for a long time. You've seen it all in the industry. A new broker and specifically we're always growing, taking on new brokers, new yeah. members. Uh, any comments, advice? words of wisdom, agents coming into the business right now, whether it be retail or any of the verticals whatsoever, any advice to new agents? 
both the commercial and residential market have their ups and downs. I always say it's better to get into a down, come into a down market and learn what, you know, because you're going to work hard anyway. Yep. And realizing that, uh, you know, you've got to put the time in and the effort in and everything else. Um, you know, but I think it, coming into a bad market's a good time to be looking at that. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, right now the interest rates are causing sort of a little bit of, you know, digestion problems mm -hmm. for a lot of us right now. You know, when a property like an industrial is a three cap and you're now financing a six cap, you know, you've got a negative return on that. It will adjust in time. The problem we have right now is we just don't have a trending line. We know what we what we did get in the past and what the expectations would be or could be happening today. But our deal volume, I think the last stat I saw from the Ontario market, we're down about 80% in terms of investment sales. Hey. That shouldn't last too, too long. Um, but it'll, it'll take some time. So back to it, I think, you know, this is a good time to get in. So then you get, you sharpen your tools, you figure all that stuff out. Um, you know, and it's a time to concentrate. When the market's hot, you forget the basics that you should be doing in this business. Yep. You know, the basics from contact one-to-one, -to -one, right? Yep. You know, talking to your clients. This is an incredibly important time to be communicating to your clients you know, what's going, because they're scared, they don't know. You know, they bought this building at 600 bucks a square industrial and maybe it's worth $400 a square. You gotta help them along like anything. So it's keeping that communication up. There may not be a sales there, but to keep that communication up is gonna be paramount over the next while. And then once you've sharpened your tools, you know, we were, even the commercial side, <clears throat> we never had to worry about open houses. I know in residential, it hasn't, it wasn't in everybody, everybody just looks at it online. Yep. But we kind of gave up the fact that, you know, we need to have a brand launch or a construction launch or uh, have an open house. Because we never did it because the market was hot. So we didn't have to worry about those things. Those are coming, those basic marketing stuff is now coming back. We have to re remember what we did in the past. Yep, but starting think, to get those emails for broker lunches and broker tours absolutely. again. Come on back, see the space, interact with your colleagues. Correct. And 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 share, you know, horror stories, war stories with uh, with your with your with your clients, with your uh, uh, other brokers and the importance in there. I think that's so that's a good time to be in there and to induct in that. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, one of the things I've always said is that uh, uh, reputation is key, you know, in this business. Um, play the long game yep. in anything else. You know, short, doing the short-term deal can really hurt you if it if it tarnishes your reputation. 100%. So be, be so conscious on that. Because when you're moving either from, if you're in the real estate, you know, brokerage side and you move yep. into the landlord side, yep. it'll be a reputation that'll either Moves make it you. or break it, yep. right? You know, and that's the one thing that you're going to be, be saving there. I think the other thing in this industry, and maybe the, back to the contact sport is, but you know, you need to attend industry events. The ICSCs, the NAOPs of the world, the SIORs of the world. Yep. You re-engage in that. TREB has a tremendous amount of uh, sessions they put on. I was on the TREB commercial board for years, and we put on educational sessions. And um, I think that, again, those are things you gotta hear. You gotta hear from different people. Hear from guys like me about what's going on in the retail world, and how does that relate to what you're seeing in, in your particular sector of the commercial industry or the residential industry. So get out there, be a sponge, learn as much as you can, contact sport, learn as much as you can, and, and learn from the people that have done it before you. Key is being curious, right? Always be learning, always be curious of what it is. You know, the one thing I've learned is the longer in the business, the less I know. <laughs> you know, when you're early in the business, you say, you know, you, you blurt out an answer, you gotta be careful it's the right or wrong answer, right? But I always say, I don't know that answer, but I'll find out for you. And then you go to your sources you have. So that, that's part of your reputational, you know, yeah. issue you have to be cautious, cautious on. 
Um, but you have to look at those things and, 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 and move forward on it. But hey, listen, is it going to be a tough time in the real estate industry? Well, absolutely. There's, but there's always been bumps. Yep. And that's why I say back to it. The clients need us more than ever before because as things change, as we understand where the trending lines are going, they always say, you know, when the tide goes out, you see where, you know, people have been swimming naked. Do you remember that, that line? <laughs> Great so you, line. So you realize that some people have been, you know, maybe developing on the edge and, and uh, but it'll all right size itself. As I talked about opportunities uh, like construction, I know it's expensive now, but our development pipeline is down to a fraction. And I think those owners that take a look at it now, get their ducks in order in terms of new developments and looking where the market's going and sort of being the first on that ready to go when the market gets more normalized, I think we'll be able to take a huge advantage of it as well. And some people that have bought product at, you know, at a lower amount, and even though it's gone down a bit from the high, they're still making a healthy profit. You know, and to look at where you can reinvest your money in other areas. And so those are things that you need to talk about your client. Yeah? It's not 600, it's 500, but you bought it at 200. Hey man, you're you're still winning. So don't think that you're you know you just because you missed the high, you know it's uh, it's it's one of those opportunities to, to you have to look at it at the case at the time when things are happening. That's great advice. It really is. It'll be interesting to see to your point where the trend goes. Uh, excited to see that we've we've got Ray Wong coming on next week from Altus. So good. Uh, he'll be a he's great got a source. A lot of information. A lot of information. <laughs> I call him the research guru. So he'll be great. Uh, last question. Oh, yeah. Outside of real estate, what uh, what are you doing these days? What keeps John outside of the myriad of things that John <laughs> Crombie does? What are you doing for fun? Are you still skiing? Oh yeah, I still yeah? ski. I'm a member of Craig Lake Ski Club, so uh, going up there. Yeah. Um, my big thing, I play guitar. Yes. And so I, I have a I, we have a rock band uh, that we do every Wednesday night. So I escape for a couple of hours and have some fun and pretend to be a big rock star. Really? Oh yeah. So it's, well, yeah. there you go. You gotta, gotta have some fun now and then, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's that's more important. You know, the other thing, uh, we just sold our house uh, in the spring. I'm in real estate. I know. <laughs> what I'm saying. And uh, but and we've we you know renting actually, and we're looking at you know market opportunities. But yep. we've, re we've rented actually near our kids, and it's been really refreshing um, to spend. You know, it's, since they're closer, it's easier to get together. And I think you know what the pandemic has taught us is the you know family and the importance of family. And so, and my dad's nearby, he's 99. I mean, oh, wow. he's, uh, he's still living in his condo, but Good it's again, him. it's spending time for that and the importance of that. You know, sometimes we forget that. And I think the pandemic has probably been a great lesson for all of us to what's important in life. You know, we've, uh, you know, we're so busy in our careers and we're so focused and sometimes this way, they're not seeing that. And then your, your career passes you by. And that's the whole thing. I'm behind my career is how fast it goes, right? Like it just, it just amazes me. It seems like yesterday, yeah. it was 20 years ago when we hired you, right? It's crazy. It is. It's crazy. And and how that time just slips on. So I think you need to have guardrails to understand, you know, what it, what's important to my life and where am I going and what am I doing? And, you know, at the end of the day, what's going to be important to you? So I think that's been a, a key. Good for you. And John, I can't speak highly enough of how much we respect you. And thank you very much for coming on. I think it's great that you're giving back to people. I think it's great that you make that a priority. And I know that we're really happy that you spent the time with us today. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Thank you, nice John. Appreciate up. it. Yes. Thanks very thank much, everybody. Really appreciate you tuning in again. Subscribe, like, follow, and we'll see you again for the next one. Mm -hmm.